Veterans Day was this last Thursday, and I thought it was the perfect time to tell you all about some amazing men whose graves I found while wandering through the Citizens Cemetery in Flagstaff, Arizona, just the other day. During World War II, members of the Navajo tribe were called upon to help their nation, the United States, in developing a code that could not be decrypted by the enemy. These men helped the Marines to create a secret and unbreakable code that would help them communicate while protecting their operational plans, and they did this in one of the thousands of languages spoken in the world, the little-known native language of the Navajo, or Diné. What lies beneath? The Navajo Code Talkers. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. and taphophiles, I'm your host, Lachelle. Today, my co-host is my oldest son, Rhett. Welcome, sweetie. Hello, everyone. I'm glad to be on here again. And I'm excited to get paid, so <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what we're doing here. That's, no, I'm, that's right. I'm happy to be here, and this is a really cool topic that I've always kind of wanted to learn more about, so I'm excited to, to Me learn today. Me too. So as I was walking through the U.S. military section of the Flagstaff Citizens Cemetery, I came across a few headstones of those that were called the Navajo Code Talkers. I was already aware of them and knew the story, mm -hmm. but this just gave me the chance to really dive in like I do with all of the episodes. Nice. I loved doing it. And I knew that you were a good one to do this with me because you have all these same interests as well. Mm -hmm. During World Wars One and Two, the US military needed to encrypt communications from enemy intelligence. American Indians have their own languages and dialects that very few people outside of their tribes understand. So this made them perfect for the role that they played. So I saw a stone for Paul Homer Blatchford and his marker read Corporal Marine Corps, World War II, born January 11th, 1917, died February 9th, 2003. Navajo code talker, our beloved Che. Means uh, I'm pretty sure grandfather in Navajo. I had a couple of Navajo friends and they taught me just a little bit. So. <laughs> Good, because I don't know too many Navajo words, just a few. The next one I found was for a man named Mike Kiani, and it said Papa, born January 15th, 1918, and died March 13th, 2003, grandfather, 6th Marine Division Code Talker, and then on the other side was his wife, Alice, and below the words, together forever, beloved parents. Super wow. sweet. 
and then it had some very beautiful native symbols looked like a teepee with a sunburst behind it maybe huh. really really pretty of course i'll post pictures of all these things yeah it's a beautiful headstone mm-hmm and then there was a marker for the singers richard b singer born mm -hmm. march 10th 1914 past december 13th 2001 it says navajo code talker and then on the other side his wife Catherine, who was a registered nurse and their stone has the cutest black and white photo of them as a young <laughs> couple right in the middle and always the portraits draw me in yeah and you see who the people are so it just made me want to know more that day that I was walking around and photographing, I saw those three. But later doing some more research, I found that there were more there. There's Leslie Cody, Cecil Gorman Sosi, and George Harlan Kirk Sr. And there may be more. Those were just the ones I was able to find. In war, it is important that messages are delivered and received as quickly as possible. It is even more crucial that the enemy cannot interpret these messages and know about military plans in advance. Yep. There have been many secret codes in the history of battles and many that were intercepted and cracked. During World War II, the Marine Corps used one of the thousands of languages spoken in the world to create an unbreakable code in the language, Navajo. It wasn't the first time a Native American language was used to create a code. During World War I, the Choctaw language was used to transmit secret tactical messages was instrumental in a successful surprise attack against the Germans. After World War I, Germany and Japan actually sent students to the United States to study Native American languages and cultures, such as the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Comanche. Since then, many members of the U.S. military services were uneasy about being able to use any code talkers during World War II. They were afraid the code would be able to be cracked. But that was before they learned about the complexity of the Navajo language. And I can attest to that. We had a class where you could learn Navajo. Some of my friends took it, and it was a pretty hard class. It's a hard language. <laughs> In 1942, a man by the name of Philip Johnston was reading a newspaper article about an armored division in Louisiana that was attempting to come up with another military code using Native American languages. Johnston knew the perfect Native American language to use in a new unbreakable code. He knew this because Johnston had lived as a child on a Navajo reservation with his family while his parents served there as missionaries. And he grew up learning the Navajo language and customs. So Johnston actually became so fluent in Navajo that he was even asked as a nine-year-old boy Wow to serve as an interpreter for a Navajo delegation that went to Washington, D.C. to lobby for Indian rights. Johnston had fought in World War I and knew of the military's search for a code that would withstand all attempts to decipher it. He also knew that Native American languages, notably Choctaw, had been used in World War I to encode messages. Johnston believed Navajo could be the answer for an indecipherable code because Navajo is an unwritten language and is also extremely complex. It's very difficult for anyone without extensive exposure and training to understand. It has no alphabet or symbols 
and is spoken only on the Navajo lands of the American Southwest. One estimate indicated that less than 30 non-Navajos could understand the language at the outbreak of World War II, and none of these were Japanese. Early in 1942, Johnston met with Major General Clayton Vogel, the commanding general of Amphibious Corps Pacific Fleet, and his staff to demonstrate to them the Navajo language's value as code. The Marine Corps decided to give Johnston's idea a try and approved a pilot project with 30 Navajos and allowed Johnston to enlist and participate in his program. The first 29 recruited Navajos, one dropped out, arrived at Camp Elliott near San Diego in May 1942. Then at Camp Pendleton, Oceanside, California, this first group had the task of first developing the Navajo code. They developed a dictionary and numerous words for military terms. They took words from their language and applied them to implements of war. The dictionary and all code words had to be memorized during training. There was no word for airplane in Navajo, so they substituted words from their language to represent these terms. So for example, they used the names of different kinds of birds to stand for different kinds of planes. Hmm. Wow. For a dive bomber, they used the word in Navajo for chicken hawk. Or a fighter plane, hummingbird. Bomber plane, buzzard. Patrol plane, crow. Transport, eagle. So they had these words substituting for other words, which also made the code more complex. In addition, an alphabet system was also developed by the code talkers. It would be used to spell out some of the words not found in Navajo vocabulary. The first letter of a Navajo word corresponded with one of the 26 letters in the English alphabet. Several different words were chosen to represent the more commonly used letters in order to make the code even more secure. So the code talkers would talk using a string of Navajo words seemingly unrelated. But what they were really doing was assigning a Navajo word for an English word that started all with the same letter. Hmm. So when the code talker translated each Navajo word into English, they then used only the first letter of the English equivalent in spelling an English word. So to better tell you what I mean, think about the English words ant, apple, and axe. They all start with the letter A. They would use in the code the Navajo word for ant or apple or axe to represent the English letter A. Oh. oh. Which then, as they said, each Navajo word and wrote them down, they would then translate those words into their English translation, and then they would take the first letter of each of the words in English, and there you would have your message. So one way to say the word Navy in Navajo code the coder would transmit the Navajo words, which I'm sorry, I'm not going to try to say because I would butcher them, but <laughs> the Navajo words for needle, ant, victor, yucca, which for those of you not living in the American Southwest, yucca is a cactus type plant that we have here. So when then translated into English and then taking the first letters of each of those words were N-A-V-Y, Navy. 
they would do the whole message in this way. And then there were also sometimes, like we said before, those words that were commonly used right. or, you know, for transport or dive bomber that would also fit in there. It was just a string of really unrelated yeah, it's Navajo very words. Complex. I would be lost. <laughs> to further complicate the code, they gave most letters more than one Navajo word to represent them. Like we mentioned before about the Navajo words for ant, apple, and axe would represent the English letter A. And not all words had to be spelled out letter by letter. The developers of the original code assigned Navajo words to represent about 450 frequently used military terms that did not exist in the Navajo language. Like we mentioned with the birds, several more examples, ironfish meant submarine and black street meant squad. The code talkers successfully translated, transmitted, and retranslated a test message in two and a half minutes without using the Navajo code. It could take hours for a soldier to complete the same task. From then on, the code talkers were used in every major operation involving the Marines in the Pacific Theater. Once a Navajo code talker completed his training, he was sent to a Marine unit deployed in the Pacific. The code talker's primary job was to talk, transmitting information on tactics and troop movement, orders, and other vital battlefield communications over telephones and radios. They also acted as messengers performed general marine duties. In Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Iwo Jima, from 1942 to 1945, they served in all six marine divisions, marine raider battalions, and marine parachute units. This gave the Marines a critical advantage throughout the war. During the nearly month-long battle for Iwo Jima, for example, six Navajo code talkers were operating just continuously. They successfully transmitted more than 800 messages. And all of the messages were transmitted without error. Marine leadership noted after the battle that the co-talkers were critical to the victory at Iwo Jima. At the end of the war, the Navajo Code remained unbroken. It's amazing. It is. The Navajo co-talkers were treated with the utmost respect by their fellow Marines. They received praise for their skill, speed, and accuracy. Major Howard Connor, who was the signal officer for the 5th Marine Division, said of the six Navajos at Iwo Jima, were it not for the Navajos, the Marines would never have taken Iwo Jima. During the course of the war, about 400 Navajos participated in the Code Talker program. The importance of the Navajo language represented a turnaround for the Code Talkers, most of whom had attended government schools on the Navajo reservation. When they went to school, students were punished if they spoke in Navajo, a practice that continued into the 1950s. It's kind of ironic that the language that helped save the war for the Allied forces had tried to be forced out of the Navajo children. I guess it's a good thing that it didn't work. <laughs> it is a good thing. It's a very good thing. In 1893, mandatory Indian education became law, and Chester Nez, one of the original 29 Navajo code talkers, was educated in an Indian boarding school in Fort Defiance, Arizona. He described his experiences in boarding school as a child in his book entitled Code Talker. Quote, Snow fell softly outside the dormitory windows. 
Loud whispering came from two beds away, Navajo. I'd been caught speaking Navajo three days before. The Pima matron brushed my teeth with brown Fels naphtha soap. I still couldn't taste food, only the acrid bitter taste of lye soap. Teachers at the school were encouraged to be strict, and the smaller children were frequently targeted by slaps or kicks. But the lingering taste of the soap was worse than either of those punishments. The knowledge of constant danger sat lodged in the pit of my stomach like a rock. I tried my best to answer questions correctly, but never knew when a matron would strike. They watched, their dark, cold eyes waiting for us to make a mistake, to do something wrong. I was always afraid, unquote. Wow, that's pretty, pretty harsh living. Yeah. They thought they could take the kids and just make them like every other person, every other white person. Also in the Indian boarding schools remained in operation in the United States as late as the 1990s. The number of Native American children in the boarding schools reached a peak in the 1970s, with an estimated enrollment of 60,000 in 1973. And in these schools, they were many times punished if they were to speak in their native language. Yikes. And the strange thing is that the Navajos were not considered citizens of the United States until 1924. I think it has something to do with the reservations being their own nations. I'm not sure, Mm -hmm. but, you know, they're called like the Navajo Nation. I don't know what the United States was thinking in those days. I wasn't here. (laughs) But they weren't considered citizens of the United States. In 1924, the U.S. Congress passed the Indian Citizenship Act, which declared all Indians born in the U.S. to be citizens. However, because voting was considered a state's right, the states of Arizona and New Mexico kept Indians disenfranchised until 1948. And so because the Navajo Reservation is located within those states, and the Navajo Code Talkers were serving this country, they did not yet even have the right to vote. Can you that even is ridiculous. believe? <laughs> I know. It's crazy. I mean, it's here they insane. are fighting for our country. You can't even, like, <laughs> vote for leaders. Exactly. The Japanese, who were very skilled at breaking code, they remained baffled by the Navajo language <laughs> and their code. Not just the language, but their complicated intense. code. Yes. The Japanese chief of intelligence said that while they were able to decipher the codes used by the U.S. Army and Army Air Corps, they never cracked the code used by the Marines. The Navajo code talkers even stymied another Navajo soldier that had been taken prisoner at Bataan. There were about 20 Navajos that served in the U.S. Army in the Philippines. This Navajo soldier, not even a part of the code talkers, was forced to listen to the jumbled, strung-together words of the code talker transmissions. And he said to a code talker after the war, quote, I never figured out what you guys who got me into all that trouble were saying, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1942, there were about 50,000 Navajo tribe members. As of 1945, about 540 Navajos served as Marines. From wow. 375 to 420 of those trained as code talkers. The rest served in other capacities. Navajo remained potentially valuable as code even after the war. For that reason, the co-talkers whose skill 
and courage saved both American lives and military engagements, only recently earned recognition from the government and the public. The Navajo Code Talkers were told to keep their role secret in case it needed to be used again. Most never told even their families of the part they played in the war and their saving efforts as Code Talkers, since it wasn't used again and modern communication techniques mean it never will. They finally began to be recognized after the declassification of the operation in 1968. President Ronald Reagan gave the Code Talkers a certificate of recognition and declared August 14th Navajo Code Talkers Day in 1982. Did you know that there was a Code Talkers Day? I had no idea. I don't think I knew that, so... That is great. The magnitude of this service gradually became known. And finally, the Navajo Code Talkers of World War II were honored for their contributions to defense on September 17, 1992, at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and an exhibit featuring the Code Talkers opened at the Pentagon as well. 35 Code Talkers, all veterans of the U.S. Marine Corps, attended the dedication of the Navajo Code Talker exhibit. The exhibit includes a display of photographs, equipment, and the original code, along with an explanation of how the code worked. Dedication ceremonies included speeches by then Deputy Secretary of Defense Donald Atwood, U.S. Senator John McCain of Arizona, and Navajo President Peterson Saw. The Navajo veterans and their families traveled to the ceremony from their homes on the Navajo Reservation, which includes parts of Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. Also in 2000, President Bill Clinton signed a law which would award the Congressional Gold Medal to the original 29 Code Talkers, and President George W. Bush presented the medals to the four surviving Code Talkers at a ceremony held in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington in July 2001. In November 2001, at the Navajo Nation, capital of Window Rock, Arizona, the Congressional Silver Medals were awarded to the rest of the Navajo Code Talkers, their surviving spouses or children. Sadly, many of the Navajo Code Talkers have passed on, never knowing of the honor a grateful nation has bestowed upon them. And that's sad too. Yeah, they never got the recognition that they deserved. And I guess in ways that make sense, we all know of people who have friends or family members that work in government right. capacities or with the military that aren't allowed to tell their families What's where they're on? serving or in yeah. what capacity because of the secret nature of what they're doing to keep our nation safe. And so... All we can do is give them this honor and gratitude afterwards. Right. I was able to find a little bit about the lives of a few of these men from obituaries that mm -hmm. I found. So we have a couple that we wanted to tell you about. From his obituary, Reuben Curley Sr. was nicknamed Mr. Aloha. <laughs> and he was one of our revered Navajo Code Talkers. He died at the age of 96 wow. at his home in Flagstaff, surrounded by the warmth and love of his family. Mr. Curley was born on July 10th, 1916 
at Bird Springs, Arizona to John and Nellie Nezzi. His Navajo paternal clan is the Yucca Fruit is Spread Out clan, and his maternal clan is the Salt clan. He was a well-known basketball player at Albuquerque Indian School and also in Texas, and he was a true horseman, but his love for the Lord was always predominant in his life. His service to the community was his faithful commitment of time and resources to the Flagstaff Mission to the Navajos. Mr. Curley enlisted in the United States Marine Corps in August of 1943 and served in World War II with the 2nd Marine Division and was a qualified rifle sharpshooter. He fought in combat in the battles of Tinian, Saipan, Guadalcanal, and Okinawa, also participating in the occupation of Japan. He received various medals and was also awarded a Purple Heart Medal. Wow. During this time, his service to the Marine Corps was as a Navajo code talker. On July 26, 2001, the Navajo code talkers had the distinct honor of being recognized and awarded with a Congressional Medal presented at the White House by President George W. Bush, which we mentioned. Right. Corporal Curley received an honorable discharge in January of 1946. He returned to Arizona after the war to work for the Navajo Army Depot for 45 years. Our next one is Navajo co-talker Merrill Sandoval. Mr. Sandoval was born April 18, 1925 at Nagizi, New Mexico, but lived in Tuba City for the past 44 years. As a student, he attended Farmington Methodist Mission School, where he learned to speak English. In 1943, he enlisted in the United States Marine Corps in Santa Fe, New Mexico. After boot camp in San Diego, Mr. Sandoval was transferred to Camp Hendleton to the Radio Communication School, where he was trained as a Navajo code talker. Mr. Sandoval served with the 2nd and 5th Marine Division in the Hawaiian Islands, Saipan, Iwo Jima, at the occupation of Japan. Mr. Sandoval's job was to stay behind the front line to translate reports from two-man co-talkers teams elsewhere on the island. He then sent these messages back to military commanders based on Hawaii. He was also responsible for passing orders to the U.S. Marines on the front line. He was mm. discharged in March 1946 as a corporal. In 1951, Mr. Sandoval married his wife, Lorraine, from Tuba City. He soon began to work for Garrett Air Research in Phoenix, where he was a machinist for 15 years before returning to the Navajo Nation in 1963. He then joined the Navajo Tribal Police Force for three years. He then became a legal advocate for DNA Legal Services. Mr. Sandoval retired after 23 years, but continued to practice as a private tribal advocate. He also served as interpreter for the tribal legal courts for another 16 years. He was married to his wife, Lorraine, for 56 years. Aww. Mr. Sandoval's brother, Samuel Sandoval, was also a Navajo co-talker. And Mr. Sandoval's maternal clan is the Sunni Edgewater clan, and his paternal clan is Red Bottom people. Mr. Sandoval had 17 grandchildren, 22 great-grandchildren, and one great-great-grandchild. And I'm sure by now, there's even more. Yeah. Another co-talker that I'll mention was Carl A. Gorman, one of the original Navajo co-talkers and later a renowned artist and lecturer, and he died at the age of 90. Mr. Gorman, the father of noted artist R.C. Gorman, 
was a rock-jawed man of many talents and had a wry sense of humor. He delighted in the belated public acclaim the Code Talkers began receiving in the 1970s, and he served as president of the Navajo Code Talkers Association. Mr. Gorman was born in 1907 on the Navajo Reservation in Chinle, where his father was a cattleman and a trader. His mother was an accomplished weaver who also worked with Presbyterian missionaries to translate religious hymns mm. into Navajo. This bicultural setting prepared Mr. Gorman for his lifelong work as an interpreter between Navajo and Anglo cultures. Mr. Gorman was 34 years old in 1942 when the Marines began recruiting young Navajos for training as code talkers, an idea that began with a son of Presbyterian missionaries to the Navajos. Mr. Gorman signed on immediately. He did it by lying about his age, <laughs> then went on to help design the code that baffled Japanese cryptographers. I read about several of them that lied about their age, like they were only 16 or something that went to fight. But, wow, 16 years old. That's yeah. Crazy. On such islands as Tinian and Iwo Jima, teams of code talkers helped coordinate movements of U.S. troops and ships. He said, Many people ask me why I fought for my country when the government has treated us pretty bad. Mr. Gorman said in Flagstaff in 1995 at the unveiling of a monument to the code talkers. But before the white man came to this country, this whole land was Indian country. And we still think it's our land, so we fight for it. I was very proud to serve my country, unquote. Don't you wow. love that? What, that is great. What a great man. After the war, Mr. Gorman used the GI Bill to study at the Art Institute in Los Angeles and was later a technical illustrator for Douglas Aircraft. He also founded a silkscreen design company and taught Indian art at the University of California at Davis. There is a bust of Gorman on the Northern Arizona University campus in Flagstaff, and it was sculpted by his son, the famous artist R.C. Gorman. And I will post photos of this along with all the other photos of the cemetery and graves of the Code Talkers, of course, to our website. There were 12 to 16 of the Code Talkers that were killed in action every source that I looked at kind of said something different. I was able to find 12 names and five are reported to be buried in veteran national cemeteries um, in Hawaii and oh, elsewhere. Okay. Paul Begay, Johnson Housewood, Peter Johnson, Jimmy Kelly King Sr., Leo Kirk, Ralph Morgan, Sam Morgan, Willie A. Nota, Tom Singer, Alfred Sosi, Harry Sosi, and Paul Kinlancini. I think what they did was just so amazing and yeah. something that they need to receive the recognition for. Yeah, I think it's a really cool story that not a lot of people really hear. It's kind of underrated, mm -hmm. you know, story how, you know, most of these boys are, you know, yeah. men had always been kind of bullied in their lives about their language and their culture and here they are you know saving our butts yeah in the war and i just think it's bad a you know yeah i think it's awesome they go and just become these major heroes 
and I just love it. And it just seemed like they loved their work mm-hmm. and they were so good at it. I think it's even cool that they even like fought in action. I didn't know that. I thought they were always just kind of, mm-hmm. you know, just doing the code talking. But it's really cool to see that they also fought. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think maybe in Flagstaff being so close to the Navajo lands that we're more exposed to this story mm-hmm. and heard it in school. And I think that it's the story that everyone needs to hear. And so as I ran across these graves, just on my walk through the cemetery one day, I just thought, oh yeah, the code talkers, like here's some and here's one. And I want to learn more about these people and more about what they did. And it just was so fascinating. So thank you, Rhett, for being here and helping me to tell their story. And I hope that it brings honor to them and that we can show our gratitude to them, these great men, for doing this amazing service that they did to our country. Thank you for having me. You know, it was a pleasure. And just to even talk about any of our veterans, we appreciate all the veterans out there and know that we thank you for your service. Anyways, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I just wanted to say thank you to all those who serve and have served in the armed forces. We especially remember them on Veterans and Memorial Day, but we are always so grateful for the sacrifices you and your families have made. And hopefully these stories we tell help bring gratitude and honor to your memory. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners.